But we live in a confusing world. And to help with that, certain people will do things to try to make it less confusing for us. Like a guy named Mark Cuban. Now, not Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban. Uh, he's a guy who owns a gallery building right by an airport. And he decided to use the roof of his gallery to put giant six-feet letters uh, to welcome people in when they fly in overhead. And so I want to show you a photo uh, of him. This is his sign, Welcome to Cleveland, on the top of his building. Isn't that nice? The only thing you need to know is that uh, he actually lives in Milwaukee, (laughs) which makes this one of the best practical jokes ever that has been going on for a long time. See, back in 1978, he was talking with his assistant, and they were talking about the space and the low planes that were flying in overhead, and she said, you know what would be great is if we made a sign welcoming people to Milwaukee. Mark thought about it, and he said, you know what would be even better and for 41 years has been playing this joke on people, which I find so amusing. Can you imagine you're flying in, you think you're going to Milwaukee, everything's great, and then you see this sign, and you start panicking, you start thinking, oh no, I got on the wrong plane, what's going on? And, and all of that because of one guy just having a little fun. But, but maybe that's how life feels for you, right? Like you're on that plane, you're going, I thought I knew where I was going, but it doesn't quite feel like that. Well, welcome to Abundant Life Church. We're so glad you're here. Uh, to those of you with me in the room, if you're watching or listening online or through a podcast, we're so glad that you are a part of this as well. And uh, my name is Jim, I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new with us, we are a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And you came on a great day, or you are watching on a great day, uh, because we're beginning a brand new series called Say What? And so I wanna encourage you to get your Bible, or get your Bibles out as well, uh, but get your journals out. And you're gonna go to week one of your journal, and I wanna encourage you to, to see a spot there to take notes. And uh, like we do every week, I'm gonna encourage you to write things down. Uh, this series especially, you're gonna have a lot of things you're gonna wanna write down and, and go pursue later. Uh, but we're gonna look at, in the next uh, few weeks, misquoted verses of the Bible. Some of the most often quoted things that we say to one another, you've probably heard them, you may have even said them, and we're gonna look at, do they really mean what we think they mean? Do they really mean these things that we've often assumed they they meant? And we're gonna dive into the context of a number of passages uh, that you've no doubt uh, heard or been familiar with, even if you've never actually read the Bible for yourself. Now I wanna set up why we're doing this because the point of this series is not to give you all a giant gotcha against other Christians. And so I don't want you walking around going, oh, I cannot believe you said that. Let me, let me fix you, right? The goal is for us to experience Jesus in a, a more intense way, in a new way, and you're hopefully gonna see that as we go. And that's the, what we're gonna look at throughout this series as we unpack some of these different verses. Because the reality is it takes so little to confuse us, doesn't it? I mean, just so little, and all of a sudden, we, we're not quite sure what we're talking about. And, and like, even like on a book, just like one poorly placed sticker can totally change the meaning of a book. For example, I don't know if any of you have read this book. <laughs> Anybody? I hear, I hear it's a real page turner. Um, I'm not sure what's underneath that sticker. I'm gonna hope it's the word for or with or something Uh, But currently, cooking your dog tasty, healthy, and safe recipes is a little bit morbid for my own taste. Um, But again, you go, wow, someone should have thought that through when they put that price tag right there. But that's how life often works. And then you have all these conclusions you draw, and maybe they're not all that accurate. 
Well, we're gonna look at throughout this series a number of passages and explore what are they really trying to say? What did they mean to the original audience and what do they mean for us today? And, and I, I'm glad that you're a part of this series. If you've got your Bibles, I wanna encourage you to get those out. We're gonna be today in Exodus 34. So if you've got a physical analog Bible, you're gonna go to the Old Testament, which is often known as the Hebrew Bible. You're gonna go to the second book in, the book of Exodus, chapter 34. If you've got a Bible app on a phone, that's awesome. I encourage you to get that out. We want you to read along for yourself. We do this every week. I encourage you to, to take part in that. And we'll be there in just a moment. Before we get there, I wanna address something very common that, that is often said or is often thought in church and, and maybe you are in this line of thinking and, and it shapes a lot of the conversation that we're gonna have throughout this series. It's a simple expression and it usually goes something like this. I just read the Bible for what it says, right? Seems simple enough. I just, I just read the Bible for it. I don't get into all that theology and all that other stuff that you guys get into. I just like to read the Bible for what it says and, and nothing more, nothing less. And, and a lot of people say this or feel this or, or maybe this is just kind of what you have in your mind. This is the, the basis that you operate from. I, I just read the Bible for what it says. And, and if that's you, I, I just wanna ask you this question. Do you? Do you really? Um, I, I would like to suggest that you probably don't um, and I can illustrate that in a variety of ways. Uh, let me read just three verses. I'll pick three. I could do a whole sermon on this subject alone, but I'll just pick three verses. Let's just uh, unpack. Do you just read the Bible for what it says? All right, so here's a couple of examples. Uh, Proverbs 17, verse eight. A bribe is like a lucky charm. Whoever gives one will prosper. How many of you have this hanging in your house? Right, life verse, anybody like this is your life verse, right? You just read it for what it says. I mean, everybody knows the way to get things is a bribe. I mean, that's how you prosper. The Bible says so, right? Just read it for what it says. Or how about this one? You ready for this? Leviticus 19. Keep my decrees. Do not make different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Okay, there's a lot to unpack in that one. Uh, let's start with uh, the first idea, uh, different kinds of animals. Show of hands, how many of you own a doodle? <laughs> you don't just read the Bible for what it says, okay? Uh, that is uh, prohibited by Old Testament law, okay? Uh, now I want you, it's gonna get awkward, uh, just look at the tag of the person sitting in front of you to see if their clothing is of mixed material, just go, real, no? Okay, yeah, uh, you begin to realize, oh, whoa, that's, uh, we're, we're stepping all over that one, that gets a little awkward. Or how about this one? Psalm 137 says, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Anyone? Anyone? Life verse, anyone? Uh, yeah, now hopefully this nervous laughter is an indication that we're all going, whoa, 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 well, hold on, Jeremy. Um, there's a good explanation for all these verses. And I agree, but that's the point. They need a little explaining. They need a little interpreting. You don't just read them for what they say because what they say would have a lot of issues. You have to make sense out of them. And we all do this, but here's the reality. Some of us think that we don't do this. Some of us think that, no, I, I, I don't interpret, I just read it. And the problem with that thinking is you begin to look at anyone else who has a different understanding than you do, and you go, oh, you're reading it wrong. 
you're reading an agenda into it or you're clearly trying to use something because you didn't conclude what I concluded when I read it as opposed to going, oh, I have my interpretation and my interpretation is different than your interpretation. Now the reality is there are Christians who have interpreted the Bible in a variety of ways for thousands of years. There are churches that have radically different interpretations of things and we should understand and be aware of that, that there's lots of interpretations of the same text, that we're reading the same thing, but what it means to us can often be very different based on a number of factors. Let me share a few of the factors I think play into this. Your personality, I think, is a factor. Now, this makes a lot of people uncomfortable because we go, no, my, my personality doesn't shape my theology. I remember years ago, I was studying one particular theology that I didn't agree with, but I was fascinated by this. And so I remember studying it, and I was trying to figure out, what do the people who believe this theology have in common? And as I was studying it and, and reading different people who all believe that theology, I had this epiphany moment where I realized they all have a similar personality. They're all wired the same way. That is why this understanding of God made sense to them. And of course it should factor in. My personality is going to shape the way God makes sense to me because that's the way I'm wired. So we need to be aware that our personality plays a role in how we interpret the Bible. Your politics plays a role. If you would say, I'm a conservative, well, that's going to shape the views uh, that you have and the things that matter to you in the Bible and things that maybe you overlook. If you're a progressive, same thing. Uh, the things that matter to you, the things that maybe you overlook are going to be shaped by that. The experiences that you've had in life are, are going to indicate the things that really matter to you and the things that don't matter quite as much. Your friends and the community around you all shape your interpretation, which is why it's so important to be a part of a healthy church community where you are learning and growing together and we can all be a part of something together. Even your view of the Bible shapes the way you view the Bible. Now, I, I can illustrate this. Uh, I, if I were to ask you, uh, what is the word of God? Okay, if I, what, what's the word of God? What's that referring to? There's uh, probably two dominant answers to that question. There's more, but, but maybe most of us would fall into one of these two. Uh, some of us would say, well, it's, it's the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. That's what the word of God is. And, and, and some of us would go, no, it's not the Bible. It's Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. Now, whichever you answer is going to shape the way that you read the Bible. See, all of these things, and, and again, the, the goal is not to say I'm gonna be totally objective because none of us can be fully objective. The goal is just to be aware of what lenses do I bring, what things are shaping the way that I understand it, and, and be aware so that you can be more objective than you would be if you just assumed I just read it for what it says. C.S. Lewis, as an author and theologian, has a great quote on this subject and, and could be a setup for the entire series. This one quote is so good. He says this, it is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him, will bring us to Jesus. But we must not use the Bible, our ancestors too often did, as a sort of encyclopedia out of which texts can be taken for use as weapons. Now that is how we get a lot of weird theology. If someone said, I need to make a point, and so I'm gonna use this verse to make that point. 
Now, the verse may not have actually meant that, but if you pull it out of its context, then it kind of sounds like it does mean that. And you can get the Bible to say just about anything. These are the weapons that C.S. Lewis is talking about. And, and no doubt you've, you've seen that. You can take a number of issues, and the Bible has been used to argue both sides of the issue. Take slavery. Slavery was argued in America by Christians using the Bible. It was argued against by other Christians who said, no, that's not the point. But both of them went back to the Bible for evidence of their argument. What, what role should women have? There have been people that have used the Bible to say women should not have the same equality that men have. They should be in a different role. And there's others that would say using the Bible, no, that women can do everything that guys can do. And you might look at that and go, how is that possible? How can people go to the one text and get any argument? And the reality is, it's how you approach it. You see, I would suggest, like Lewis states, that the goal of reading the Bible is in order to find Jesus. It's not to get a bunch of, like, what are my favorite ideas, or what's the theology that I want to have, but to discover Jesus. And so we read it to go, what helps me understand who Jesus is and have a more accurate understanding of him? That should be the goal. That should be the pursuit of how we read Scripture. Now, it's to that end that we're going to unpack a number of passages in this series to, to shape our understanding of who God is and how we're going to experience him. I have something in my office. It's this statue. And this is uh, a great conversation starter, and it's a great reminder for me as well. Uh, you might not have any idea what this is. This is a small little replica of a real statue uh, made by Michelangelo of uh, Moses. Okay, so this is uh, a depiction of Moses, and he's got the Ten Commandments right there, and he's sitting very Moses-like. Um, but the thing that people always say, I always get one question asked whenever someone sees this in my office. Uh, they'll ask, you know, who is it? And it's Moses. And then there's always a follow-up question. And the question is, why does he have horns? Now, I don't know if you can see from where you're sitting or where you're watching, uh, but on top of his head are, are two little horns. Now, to help you see this better, let's go to the original. The original version is seven feet, eight inches tall. So here's what this looks like. Uh, this is it you know, in all of its full glory. And if you zoom in on it in the next photo, uh, we will see that indeed Moses has horns on his head. Now about this time, you might be thinking, I think I missed that lesson in Sunday school. Um, I, I don't remember that verse. Uh, where, where does it say that Moses has horns? Like, what, how do I make sense of this, right? Because you, you might not be aware. Why did Michelangelo put horns on Moses? Well, to answer that question, we gotta go back a little bit, and, and we gotta go back to the book of Exodus. And so we're gonna read Exodus chapter 34 to answer the question, why did Michelangelo put horns on Moses? It comes from this passage. So let's read this together. If you're with me in your Bible, it's Exodus 34, uh, beginning in verse 29. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, these are the 10 commandments, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. I love this image. So Moses goes to the mountain, he spends time with God, and when he comes back, he literally has radiation oozing off of him. His face is radiating light and he's unaware of it. So he's got no clue, so he's like, hey guys, hey, check this out, got some Ten Commandments, what are we doing for dinner later? Like, totally normal conversation, and they're like, okay, uh, Moses, there's like something happening with your face, I don't know what it is, uh, but it's freaking us all out. And he's like, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, you're like 
Like your face is glowing. Like Moses, I don't know how else to tell you, but something's happening. And Moses is like, wait, I, I, I didn't understand because of his time with God. Jump down to verse 35. They saw that his face was radiant, and then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So Moses devises a little solution. Oh, okay, uh, my face is shining too brightly. It's creeping everybody out, and they can't talk to me. So I'll wear a veil so that when my face is glowing, they can actually have a conversation with me because it'd be rather intense to talk to someone who's glowing. And so he'd wear the veil, and when he'd go back to you know, be with God, he'd take the veil off, and he'd recharge the radiation, and then he'd go back and put the veil back on. And he would do this for a while and until eventually the glow uh, wore off. So this is the passage that, that Michelangelo was referring to when he referred to Moses with horns. Make sense? Yeah, so let's just pray and go home, and uh, all of you can be really angry and go Google this. Um, no, so this is what's going on, but you have to know a little history to understand how to connect all these ideas to get to our friend Moses with horns. In the fourth century, there's a guy named Jerome, and Jerome's goal was to, in, to translate the Bible from the original languages into Latin. Now, we don't speak Latin today, not a big deal for us, but in the fourth century, this was a big deal. And so uh, the Old Testament's in Hebrew, the New Testament is in Greek. Jerome's like, look, I'm gonna translate this whole sucker into Latin. And he called it the Vulgate. This is what we know as the Vulgate today, if you ever heard this. It's the Latin translation of the Bible from our buddy Jerome. Now, if you know church history, which most of you probably love church history, uh, in the 1500s, the Catholic Church would eventually use this translation as their primary source. So the Vulgate was a big deal. Uh, this was a huge undertaking uh, for Jerome to take this into the, you know, the original languages into Latin that could be used by, by more people. Now, the problem was when Jerome got to Exodus 34, he got a little bit confused on the idea of, of what was going on with Moses' face. The idea for it being, you know, it was radiating light or it was radiant, he, he got stuck on that word a little bit in his translation. Now, unless you knew Latin, you wouldn't know that, you know, Jerome was maybe a little bit off. But uh, if you fast forward in time, in the 1600s, they took the Vulgate, which was in Latin, and they translated it into English. And it was like, you know, big deal, again, from Latin into English. Now, again, this is not where our English translations come from. But back then in the 1600s, this was, if you wanted English, this was where you'd go to. And this was the dominant idea that was used in those days. And so I want to read to you uh, his translation that, again, from the Latin in, back into English here for us, uh, but we can see what his translation was of Exodus 34. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he held the two tablets of the testimony, and he knew not that his face was horned from the conversation of the Lord. I just read the Bible for what it says. That's, that's all I do. I just read the Bible for what it says, right? Now, if that's what you did, you're like, that's weird, but okay, I guess Moses had horns. I don't know why he had horns, but clearly he had horns when he came down from the mountain. We've got to figure out theologically how to justify why does Moses have horns. And, uh, and again, you can read a number of funny things. There's a bunch of theories about this as to why did Moses have horns? You know, where there's some depiction of he was evil and the law was evil. I mean, lots of different conspiracy theories about this. But really, you can trace it back to our buddy Jerome, who got a little bit confused on a word, and that had huge implications for a lot of people. Because art in the Middle Ages used this idea. And so oftentimes you can see Moses depicted and he has horns. 
because of Jerome. Let me show you a manuscript. This is a cool image, and it's got, you know, Moses here in the corner. And if you didn't know better, you would think, okay, uh, let's see what this is. This is Satan and people worshiping Satan. Uh, like, you know, like you have this whole thing because clearly that guy in the corner must be Satan. It's not Satan, it's Moses. He just has giant horns. Now, you can imagine the theological hoops you'd have to jump through to figure out why would Moses have horns. How do we have a great explanation for this? But the answer is Jerome got a little bit confused with his Latin. That, that's, that's the answer to that. And, and you go, oh, that's all can be traced to that one misunderstanding. So let me ask you this question. Does it matter whether your view of Moses has horns? Maybe, maybe not. You can make a case. But let me ask you a more important question than that. Does it matter whether your view of Jesus is accurate? Now, I would say this is a very different question than does Moses have horns or not. This is uh, the same kind of idea, but, but you're going, well, yeah, that one matters. That, that one matters quite a bit of, of how accurate your view of Jesus is because you're going to respond to Jesus according to your view of him. In his book, Seeing is Believing, the author Greg Boyd says it like this. We are only as healthy as our picture of God is accurate. And that may seem like a weird comparison to you to go, why does my view of God have any indicator of how healthy I am? Uh, but as Greg would explain, that, that these are linked together. And so if you could measure yourself, how accurate do you think your view of God is? On a scale from one to 10, just if you had to guess, how accurate do you think it is? Now you might be here today and you're going, look, I'm, I'm new to this whole Jesus thing. I'm just figuring this out. So maybe you give yourself a one. You're, you're just trying to learn it. That's awesome. Uh, but that would mean you, you've got some, some room for growth there to, to truly be healthy as a person uh, before you can really understand him. And maybe that you've you know, been following Jesus for a long time. You're going, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty up there. Uh, but you might be going, well, what's, what's the point of it? Why do we need to have such an accurate view? Greg goes on to explain it like this. It's not what we believe intellectually that impacts us. It's what we experience as real. See, it's not about, hey, uh, how much uh, and how many of these verses can you memorize? How smart do you sound when, you know, someone talks about the Bible and you go, oh, wow, that guy, look at him. He, he really understands it. It's not about that. It's about how you experience God. See, your view of God will shape your experience of God. Now, if you were here last week with us, we had my friend uh, Carl Romas, who gave an incredible uh, message on God, and part of it was God as Father, right, and, and this idea. Now, that one idea has tripped up a lot of people over the years, because a lot of you, maybe this is your story, you don't have a good view of, of your dad, and your dad was not a positive influence in your life, and that's an area of hurt for you, uh, of uh, maybe neglect for you, uh, and you just go, wow, that is a wound I carry, and then you read a verse about God as Father, and you're like, ugh, not interested. I, I, I don't want to experience God like that because my dad was not good. My dad hurt me. I have a pain with that. And so you have this, this issue. It's not an intellectual issue. It's an issue over experience because the idea of God as a father is foreign to you. Or it's uncomfortable to you. So you struggle to experience God like that. Now, as a little side note, if that is you, and that's one of those images you struggle with, it may be helpful, and I encourage people to do this. Think of God as mother. And there's nothing that it might sound weird to your ears, but there's nothing weird theologically about that. We have all those images in Scripture. But that might be a way to, to connect with God as a parent if that one image of a father is still difficult for you. I know a lot of people that they focus on, they pray to God as mother if they have that hang-up. 
But that helps you to see how these are all connected, that what you picture about God will shape the way that you will interact with God. Now I wanna show you something that Jesus said that I find so fascinating and really fuels a lot of how we should pursue him. In John chapter 16, uh, verse 12, Jesus said this, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. What was that? Like, can you imagine what Jesus wanted to say, but he didn't say because they weren't ready for it? I mean, it's like the original, you can't handle the truth moment. Like he's going, I've got more, but it would overwhelm you. It's too much for you, so I can't share it. And the rest of us are like, oh, what was that? I wanna know, check this out. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, this is the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, to guide us into truth. Okay, that's cool. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And by this point, Christians go, okay, yeah, yeah, I got this. Okay, so uh, Jesus couldn't tell us everything, but he left us the Bible, and so we have the Bible to keep growing in truth. And so you get to the next idea, and you go, he will glorify the Bible because it is from the Bible that he will receive what he will make known to you. Got it. Yeah, that's why we read the Bible. No, that's not what Jesus says. Notice the focus on himself. The Holy Spirit will glorify me, Jesus, because it is from Jesus that he will receive what he will make known to you. So Jesus redirects all of this into himself. He's going, look, I know you guys are all wondering what God's really like. Look at me. I'm what God is really like. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit that will guide you into all truth. Not because of some texture setting, because you will experience Jesus. And so, when we read the Bible, we should always read it and go, I need the Holy Spirit to guide me into truth. To guide me in a deeper understanding, not for theology's sake, for the sake of experiencing Jesus. For encountering Jesus. That is why we read a text like that. That is why we study like that. And see, you can draw the conclusion then that you live out your faith according to your view of God. It's a very common you know, way to connect this. My faith is lived out, it's processed in light of what I think about when I think about God, which is why theology matters. It is not to make you sound smart, it's not to somehow have a, a perfect theology as if that were a thing, it's to help you experience Jesus in new ways, in greater ways, in, in fresh ways always. You know, one of the things that uh, is, is sometimes said of Christians, and maybe you've heard this, is that we are people of the book. This was originally uh, a Muslim idea to describe Christians, and many Christians take this as a badge of honor. Like, yeah, we are people of the book. We are people of the Bible. I would suggest to you that that's not what Christians are, that we are people of the person, of the person of Jesus. That's who we are. We are not following a book. We're not giving our lives to a book. We are giving our lives to a person. And the book directs us to that person. The book reveals that person to us and is that person that we are following. And it's an important distinction to make as you read the book that points to him. Thomas Adams said it like this. The Bible is to us what the star was to the wise men. If you know the, the, the you know, Christmas story, that this baby Jesus was born and people from far and wide, these wise men were gonna come and see him. And how did they find out about it? There was a star and they studied the star. They, they stared at the star and the star led them to Jesus. But they did not stop and worship the star, especially once they found Jesus. 
And it's the same thing with us in the Bible. We don't stop and, and worship the Bible. We use the Bible to get us to Jesus. We go, oh, this is the point. I realize now. But I, I would encourage you, if you are reading the Bible and it's not leading you to Jesus, you ready for this? You're doing it wrong. I say that with all the love I can muster, okay? If you are reading the Bible and it is not leading you to Jesus, you are doing it wrong. You are missing the point, and you're probably creating a bunch of theologies uh, that, that make sense to you, that you like, that can be used as a weapon. The goal of this is to pursue Jesus, to find Jesus, to experience Jesus as a result. And so let me ask you this question. How are you experiencing Jesus in new ways? How are you experiencing Jesus in fresh ways? You know, I don't know if you ever met the husband or the wife that, that says, you know what, uh, hey, when I, we got married, I told you that I love you, and if anything changes, I'll, I'll let you know, but just go off that, right? I'm not gonna keep telling you. Not a healthy way to operate a, a marriage if you're, you know, if you're married and you're interested. Uh, you should probably keep telling that person, keep showing that love, uh, keep it fresh, right? Because the relationship needs to grow. That's the same thing with Jesus. Some of you are like, I met Jesus. I, I know him, I know exactly who he is. And, and you're like, End of conversation, like, I know him, I met him, we're good. Like, if anything changes, he'll let me know. And the reality is, if that's your view of Jesus, you haven't really met Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't fit in the little boxes that we put him in. He doesn't just stay contained and, hey, I'll be in the corner if you need me. That's not Jesus. You should be every day waking up going, all right, Jesus, what new thing are we doing today? What new, fresh thing are you gonna reveal to me today? And, and if we are following him, we should always have open eyes to go, what am I gonna learn? What am I gonna experience about Jesus today? And that is the adventure. We can spend the rest of our lives pursuing him and learning about him and experiencing him in new ways. I'm gonna close with uh, something that I read recently. It's about an organization at Yale University called the Yale Political Union. And it's a debate society that they have at the university. And as you can imagine, these are people who are very good at debating and, and very detailed in the process that they have created in order to do this society. And someone was recently uh, you know, researching it and talking to them and, and, and studying it, and they did a write-up about their experience of what they found at Yale Political Union. It says, members who interviewed for some leadership position in the YPU would usually be asked this question. Did you ever break someone on the floor. Now, to break on the floor in the society's parlance was to change your mind in the middle of a debate right there in front of everyone. To break someone on the floor was a signal achievement. You can imagine, if you, you know, had a very persuasive argument, if you were good at debate, that if you could get someone right there in the moment to go, whoa, your argument's better, I give up, I I'm going with you. That would be the pinnacle moment, like yes, and, and some of us, that's how we live out our faith, right? I, I'm gonna convince you to, to agree with my theology, to agree with my view of God, and that is the pinnacle moment. But what I read next was what most fascinated me. But, and here's the really essential thing. The candidate would also be asked this question. Have you ever broken on the floor? And to this question, the correct answer was yes. After all, it wasn't very likely that you'd walked into the YPU with the most accurate possible politics, ethics, and meta-ethics. And then it says this line. If you hadn't had to jettison some of your ideas several years in, we had our doubts about how honestly and deeply you were engaging in debate. Isn't that fascinating? 
It wasn't just how many times have you broken someone else, but hey, how many times have you changed your mind? And if you said, oh, I've never had to, I, it was not a badge of honor. It was seen as a lack of commitment to the process. What if we thought about our faith the same way? That the goal is not to convince everyone else, you are wrong and I'm right, but the goal was to always be challenging ourselves to be growing, to be learning, to be willing, if we can use this word, to jettison anything that we believe that's not accurate. Anything we go, yeah, my parents told me that. Or I heard that in church, or I, I, I picked that up somewhere. But I don't think that's accurate anymore. See, this should be the process for all of us. I don't just say, hey, uh, come and let me tell you how I'm right and you're wrong. I have preached sermons that I would not preach again. That is awkward for a communicator, right? But years ago, I thought things about God that I have jettisoned in the process. And went, you know what? Uh, that made sense to me then. I don't see it like that anymore. And I keep trying to learn and try to be as open as I can. I have no idea what kind of sermons I'll preach in 30 years. It would probably scare me now if I could hear myself then, right? But that's the adrenaline rush of faith. That's the exciting part to go, Jesus, what new thing are you gonna show me? What new thing are you gonna reveal to me? How can I experience you in a new way? And so I wanna encourage you not only to come back for each week of this series, but I wanna encourage you when you wake up in the morning to be expecting Jesus to show up in new ways, to expect something more of Jesus than, yeah, I met him once, I know who he is, to go, Jesus, what are you up to now and how can I see you and experience you in fresh ways? Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we ask that you would Allow us to do this. Allow us to not only to see you more accurately, but to experience you in a new way. And so God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. As we study throughout this series a number of passages that are very popular uh, in our culture to use, but as we just experience every day with you, would we have the expectation that you are going to guide us into a new understanding, into, into a, a more complete picture of you than we had yesterday. May we be able to handle more things tomorrow than we can handle today because we keep growing in our experiences of you. May you be able to breathe a fresh breath of your spirit upon this community because we are open to it and we are willing and ready to receive you in this way. We ask this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.